Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Everybody, it is that time for the living, breathing, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, the word of the living God, to bring our hearts and our lives before God's word. Let's ask him for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider not just ordinary words that come from any man, but the breath of God breathes into our hearts and lives, life eternal with blessing, with power to transform us, to break every chain, to give us wisdom beyond our wisest teachers. We look to you, God. We open our hearts. We open our ears as much as we can. We're going to need your help, God. Strong words today from our Lord and Savior. May we take them in the spirit in which he spoke them. Words to bring us blessing, not harm, joy, and life evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I like the Reader's Digest, an article that I recently read entitled, 12 Crazy But True Reasons People Filed for Divorce. All right, number one. (laughs) After 25 years of apparently a happy marriage, as the husband's thinking goes, a wife in Northern California, no less, uh, and I remember reading this story back in the 90s, suddenly divorced her husband out of the blue. Well, that baffled quite a few people who thought they had a reasonably uh, stable marriage, but not too long afterwards, the truth came out. It turns out that 11 days before her husband was was served those papers, she won $1.3 million in the California State Lottery. She didn't want to share. Poetic justice. The judge ended up finding her guilty of fraud and malice and awarded all the winnings to her now (laughs) ex-husband. That's crazy with all caps right there. Another California woman filed for divorce when she discovered who her husband voted for, president. I felt betrayed, I'm quoting her, and it opened up areas between us I had not faced before. I'll leave the details to your imaginations. Number three, and finally, an Arab man from the Middle East 
filed for divorce shortly after his marriage when he saw for the first time his wife without makeup. <laughs> he said, and I quote, I felt deceived by her cosmetics. <laughs> now these days, from both here and abroad, it's possible to divorce for any and every reason. In fact, we call it no-fault divorce. In other words, you don't have to prove any misdeeds. Uh, you don't have to have a stated reason at all. You just check the box, irreconcilable differences, done and done. Now, it wasn't always the case, nor is it the case in some of our states in this country. You must prove a serious breach of vows has taken place. It's called fault divorce. And in order to legally dissolve the marriage, you have to prove something like adultery, abuse, abandonment, something like that. Now, that will be closer to Jesus' take, as we're going to see this morning in the Sermon on the Mount when the subject of divorce comes up. Very famous verses indeed. And he's going to shock the crowd as he is in the habit of doing. He shocks us to bring us to him, to love grace, to run to the cross, to walk with God, to do things right. And he's going to shock them in a way that teaches them about God's true intention about marriage. And so how sacred those marriage vows are. And the Jews at that time uh, did not regard marriage as serious as uh, God regarded it. And so as we dive back in, I mentioned it is the Sermon on the Hilltop or Mount as we like to call it. Jesus out of love is helping his Jewish listeners, most of whom consider themselves decent, law-abiding uh, citizens and good people. And so, you know, he wants us to come to heaven, and there's nobody getting to heaven without understanding their moral bankruptcy. They are sinners in need of the cross, the blood of Jesus, the death of a substitute on, on their behalf. And if you think you're basically a good person by checking off all the boxes of the commandments, check, 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 well, then you're not going to wind up in heaven. So in love, Jesus says sometimes he has to take a jackhammer, as I would consider these words today, to get through to us. <laughs> no, you don't measure up. It's not about checking a box about outward observance. It's about your heart. And so he's going to bring out the commands. And nothing will make you long for grace uh, than Jesus bringing out the commands of God and explaining how high and low and deep and wide they go. So he's already mentioned, thou shalt not commit murder. And everybody's like, phew, check that box. And then he said, but uh, have you ever hated somebody and been so angry you wish they would disappear? Hmm. And then uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the rest of the crowd went, check that box. And he said, uh, have you ever lusted or had thoughts? toward anybody that was indecent and improper. We've already broken the spirit of the command and committed adultery in the privacy of your own heart. And so he's terrorizing people to, to bring them to himself because some people won't come any other way. 
because they're basically good people. He says, well, let's bring out some more commands, three more this morning, because he knows these commands in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, are commandments that he knows they have all wrong. So he's going to bring three more commandments out this morning. We look at them to stir up our hearts, to draw us to him, to love grace, and to know we are desperate. You will hear this message, and you will walk away and say, woe to me, I am a desperate person who must live their life on their knees, looking to God for his grace and his power to be the kind of man, to be the kind of husband, to be the kind of wife, to be the kind of person God wants me to be. And that's the point of Jesus' strong words. There are going to be commands, note takers ready. Here they come. There's three areas. He's going to talk about what the Bible says about divorce, the command, allowing divorce, actually. And then number two, taking oaths, people just saying, I swear to God, it's true. He wants to talk about that because it was really out of control. And then thirdly, he wants to talk about retaliation. How are his children supposed to react in a hostile world where there's aggression and loss and harm? When it comes our way, how are we supposed to uh, respond? Is it a spirit of retaliation? So those are the areas, divorce, taking oaths, and retaliation. Uh, as we get started, if you want to kind of convert that over to Christian exhortations, I would put it this way. He's saying we believers must, A, take our marriage vows as seriously as God intends them to be. Number two, to be people of our word, to pay attention that we should speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, since our master is the truth, the way, the life, right? And number three, to react with humility, not vengeance, not a this for that kind of mentality, but to be merciful. So up first will be the subject of marriage. He says in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must do so by giving her a certificate of divorce, quoting Deuteronomy 24. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. In the Greek, it does say causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So out comes the jackhammer and time for some thinking more deeply. So two verses here packed with power like a nuclear blast, you know, they struck uh, fear and confusion in the hearts of some believers who've had the sad experience of divorce and that for reasons other than a cheating spouse which seems to be Jesus' only exception. And so how do people go forward with their lives with these kinds of strong words? Well, yes, Jesus' words should always jolt us into kingdom reality. That's going to happen. And yes, God is super serious about marriage, which is really his point here, very clearly intends Marriage to be permanent and lifelong and not to be entered into lightly or exited at whim, right? Uh, so it should evoke some awe 
and some reverence, but not to cause disillusionment or shame or stigma for any believer who's been washed in the blood of Christ, whose sins will never be remembered. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, period. And so we will take the meaning, and once you understand the situation which Jesus is specifically addressing, the abuse, this no-fault divorce at anybody's whim, then you're going to understand really essentially what he's saying, and you're going to uh, take these words to heart and not uh, have them as a cause of uh, disillusionment in any way. So it's easy to see Jesus' progression from what he's been saying. He was just speaking about adultery, and then, of course, the next step would be and divorce because of the vows being broken. And so he wants to emphasize the sanctity of marriage using this shocking language. So first he says there in your opening verse, it's been said, and we've already talked about what that means. He's saying, in other words, it's the accepted practice for Jews for many centuries uh, to divorce. And they quote Deuteronomy 4, and they, that all a man needs to do to divorce is get a certificate of divorce, which now uh, anybody who knows Deuteronomy 24 already realizes the rabbis have shortened the verse down to all you need is the certificate, right? For any reason. All you need is a form. They had dumbed it down and they said, just hand her the paper and you're done with her for any and all reasons. And so the mistaken idea here was that since God allowed it in the Old Testament and talks about how to go about a legal divorce, that God's okay with it and that he's happy about it. And for any reason you can, uh, end the marriage with a clean conscience and do it biblically. And Jesus says, oh, no, uh, no, no, you guys... Uh, uh, you got to do some thinking here. And so he's going to say, I tell you, unless there's a legitimate cause, a true breach of vows, like sexual immorality, God doesn't recognize a sham divorce like that. And so to bring uh, the point home, let me go to uh, Matthew 19. Fast forward the tape a little bit. Let me set it up. The religious leaders, the bad guys who are the purveyors of this sham divorce thing. They're the ones who are pushing it. Uh, they corner Jesus in Matthew 19, and they ask him publicly. They say, is it okay to divorce for any and all reasons, which was so common and well-loved practice by the men especially, right? So they want Jesus to, to get in trouble and become unpopular with every man present. And so the genius of God in a human body, who is Jesus, he says, um, let's go back to Genesis 2 with the intention of marriage. And then let's, let me quote that for you. And then I think you'll have your answer to your question. Is it okay for us to divorce for any and every reason? So Matthew 19 says, Jesus says, well, you guys are Bible scholars. So haven't you read in the Bible where it says in Genesis chapter two that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, guys, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. To answer your question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? And he says this, which, which answers, no, of course, it's contrary to God's design. It might be a last resort, a horrible situation, a necessary evil, but even then God is not happy. He hates divorce because he knows what it does to a person's soul, to a family, to the community, to the children. And so they're speechless. So one of them says, well, what about Deuteronomy 24? Because Moses said, all we have to do is get a certificate of divorce. So Jesus says, the reason that God gave Moses that stipulation about divorce was because of your evil hearts to manage the consequences of your sin because God knows that you're sinners and you are going to fail and be self-absorbed and cheat on one another and do all of this. So when it happens, God knows he gave a stipulation not to condone it, but to manage the consequences of your willful rebellion. So that put them in check for a while. We can go back to the verses there, and that's the whole point there. Now, I like to say before we move on, Deuteronomy 24, as I alluded to, was a fault divorce clause. There are four verses, but they only wanted one. Just give me the piece of paper. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, for reasons of immorality. Do you see? And so they just cut away that part and said, and here's what they taught. And Josephus, a Jewish historian of the day, said, here are some of the reasons what the rabbis were saying you could divorce for. Um, a man becomes bored, frustrated, irritated. Uh, did she ever uh, burn the meal? Did, uh, is, are the meals uh, tasty enough for you? Um, all of this thing, but here's the big deal. Is there somebody you're better suited for? Have you met somebody who's younger, more attractive? Then this is what you do. Get your piece of paper. Put an X next to irreconcilable differences and send her on her way. And you've done it biblically, Deuteronomy 24. And you've done it legally. And Jesus says, where I'm from, we call that adultery. We call it adultery because that's all it is. It's a sham. And God doesn't recognize it. When it's that kind of joke, when you're doing it so that you can commit adultery, let's just call it for what it is. It's not divorce. It's not Deuteronomy 24. It's you trying to cover up your adultery. And so he says, that's not going to go over very well. And so regarding the only exception clause... Um, the question is, is there really only one biblical exception as stated here that seems so wooden and in concrete? Uh, 
Or is sexual, immor- is sexual immorality just really a good illustration of serious breaching of the vows? Uh, that might give rise to legitimate biblical divorce. Well, it's never wise to presume upon the word of God, but one writer said this, it is wise to take the whole counsel of God into view. And since, scholars say, since there is a biblical, another biblical exception for biblical divorce found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, by the same God, says, if a unbeliever wants to ditch you in your marriage, you're a believer now, and they say, no, Jesus, for me, I'm out of here, you are free, you are not bound. And so, therefore, since there is a biblical chapter and verse to go to, exception for another biblical reason why you can be divorced and every scholar I've been reading remarried in that situation, then we have to perceive Jesus' words, something a little more loose that says something like this, that divorce is illegitimate in God's eyes without a real and true cause where the vows are dissolved like sexual immorality, like when he beats her, like when he harms or molests the children, like when he's unreformed and drunk and strung out on drugs, like when he is wanted for murder in three other states. Now, come on. Common sense is okay for the people of God. Amen? This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, divorce is a last resort. It's not required not required. There are many Christian couples who bounce back after terrible things like sexual immorality and adultery. They bounce back. I did a recommittal service that was out of this world after a heinous falling away from grace. So it happens. He's just saying it's a last resort. It's a necessary evil of sorts. And he's saying, so watch out, Christians who get married and say, yeah, oh, we're going to get divorced because we're not happy. Oh, we're not happy is not there. I'm not going to make it. And uh, uh, oh, because, you know, I'm not getting my needs met. Not one husband or wife will get to heaven being able to say, I had 100% of my needs met 100% of the times. Nobody's going to get that. We're all limping together in the right direction. But, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, a lot of Christians live quiet lives of desperation. They have said no to themselves. They have picked up their crosses and they are following because they don't have a biblical reason. So because they don't have a biblical reason, guess what? They start working harder. They forgive down deep. They let love cover a multitude of sins. They take it seriously. They're on their knees. They're trying and striving and working and putting the other person uh, ahead of their own interests. Yeah, because what is God saying? God's saying, listen, Christian, this is your life. This is your spouse. Now, what happened before you came to faith? Guess what? If somebody's talking to me about this and they're not even saved, you know what I tell them? Listen, pal, you've got a bigger problem to worry about. You're on the road to perishing. And when you're dead in your sins and trespasses, there's nothing that counts until you come to life. When you come to life, 
the time clock starts, and then we can talk about these things. And so I ran into a couple who was celebrating at a, this restaurant, 65 years of marriage, and I got to hear a little bit of just how happy they were, and just the whole table was glowing. And I went up to the guy and I said, hey, what's the secret of a happy marriage, 65 years? And he says, he says it comes down to two words. Yes, dear. <laughs> Thank you, Patty, for that. <laughs> applauding that. And then she kind of pulled my sleeve a little bit. She said, don't let him kid you. And these words seared into me. A good marriage takes a lot of hard work and sacrifice. And when you have the mindset that we as Christians, we don't use the word divorce ever. It never is an option, never, unless God forbid, unless God forbid. Outside of the unless God forbid, which is most of our lives, we're in this. Oh, something about for better, for worse. How many times have I reminded somebody on the love seat in my office? For better, for worse, this is the worst. <laughs> a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. We can't, he can. That's what he's saying. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary of your marriage. And I'll give you rest and I'll help you to be the wife, the spouse, the husband that you need to be. Now, speaking of Divorce and breaking vows or taking them often lightly, it gets Jesus to think about the way people are always saying, I swear, I swear, it's true, I swear, so lightly, and then doing the opposite. So he says there in verse 33, again, you've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, Moses' days, the acceptable, do not break your oath, he's quoting the Old Testament, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. Duh, why does God even have to remind us? Why is that a command? Like, shouldn't we just know? I made a promise. I invoked the name of God. I should keep it. No, he has to tell us in command form. Yeah, you better do that. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear oaths at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. They used to say, by my head, meaning, oh, I swear my life. Uh, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Wow. So we're going to talk about that. So Jesus here is acknowledging that the Old Testament makes allowances for oaths, which began... Uh, civic oaths and religious uh, vows. Uh, and he's not talking about that now because that, those kinds of vows, the rabbis kind of in culture, just kind of shifted from the courts and from the temple over into everyday life. And so people were just invoking God's name uh, when it really came down to they needed to, be, 
to be believed so that we would invoke God's name, swear that it's true, involve God in it so that if it were untrue, God would uh, potentially judge them. And that was the, the swearing. What he means by swearing or oaths is not swearing and cussing, obviously. It's to swear an oath that way. And so Leviticus 19, Numbers 38, Deuteronomy 23, all have that kind of language. Don't break your promises. Keep your oaths that you've made to the Lord. So Jesus says, let's take it up a notch. He says, now, Jesus is not, as I've just said, outlawing civic and vocational pledges or religious vows. Paul the Apostle takes a vow. Jesus is put under oath. He answers the question. Paul is put under oath. He answers the question. And so we're not talking about that. He's talking to disciples. He's talking about your everyday life and how people are, are so prone to be saying, uh, you, you know, listen, trust me, I swear it's true. I swear to God on this one. And this is exactly what he's talking about. It was a common abuse practice uh, as it is out of control in our own culture. And I Googled around, every culture does it. Even the cultures without a biblical knowledge of God do it. In India, in the courts, you swear uh, by God. Now, there's 380 million of them, so <laughs> uh, but we all do it. And there's a good reason the whole world has to take an oath sometimes to make sure we're telling the truth. Now, uh, did you do your homework? Did you? I swear to God I did. Uh, did you finish the report? Did you send the email? Yeah, really? I swear. I swear, right? I swear by the Torah. They did it uh, in the, the Jews did it. I swear by the Bible. I swear by the Torah. I swear by the temple. I swear by the gold in the temple. I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by my own head. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my kids' lives. I swear on my grandmother's grave. I swear God will strike me dead if I swear on my life before God. I'm speaking before God and Jesus comes into all of this and says, stop it. You're a bunch of liars. <laughs> the only reason you need an oath is because you can't be trusted. Oh, so many times the new saying is, you're like, I'm not going to lie. And every time someone says that to me, I'm not going to lie, I, I'm like, like usual. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I realize, yeah, I, I mean, not this time. I'm not lying this time. Right? And so that is why a vow, that is why we have to pull out God's name or, or a book and put our hand on it because why? We're a bunch of liars. We couldn't tell the truth for one week. Not one person in this room tells the truth all the time. Not one person. And why is that? Jesus said, it's not your tongue. Not the tongue is the problem. It's your heart. That's why we need the regenerative uh, power of the Holy Spirit pressing down that inclination to lie, especially when there's something to gain or lose. Oh, we're so quick to just kind of say, okay, and this is what was happening here. Here's what they wanted. They wanted wiggle room here in verses 34 and um, 35, 36. They want wiggle room. So what they did, they would swear to God about something, but they saw that as binding. So they came up with this. 
We need a loophole. We need some wiggle room so we can't invoke his name. You know, something bad could happen to us. So let's water down the object by which we swear. So it's not, then we can lie or, and get out of it because it's not directly connected to God's person. So he says, listen, <laughs> number one, they would say, he has to uh, straighten them out in their foolishness. So he says, that's ridiculous. Like you can get away with it if you only swear by heaven. Well, he says, I swear by heaven. Um, excuse me, that binds you. Because God reigns from his throne in heaven. Oh, it's not so far removed. Well, they say, well, I swear by earth. Certainly that's removed. Not so much. He puts his heels up when he wants to relax. And he uses the earth as an ottoman. He created the earth. The earth exists because he spoke it into existence. And you think there's no connection to God there? That you can swear by the earth and then do as you please because it's not connected to God? He spins it around. It all goes back to him, and then I swear by Jerusalem. It's just a city, is it? It's the city of the great king. It's God's city. So when you swear by Jerusalem, thinking, oh, well, I'm off the hook. I can get out of this. I can break my pledge or, or tell a lie. Because it's just a city. He says it's connected to God. And then the best one of all, and the one they did the most, was I just swear on my own life, you know? What does God have to do with that? And Jesus just laughs. Are you kidding me? Where do you think you came from? Did you create yourself? God created you, and he's intimately aware of everything, including down to the number of hairs on your head or the lack thereof. <laughs> he says, whose life are you swearing on? Is it really your life? You can't even make one hair black or white without going to the drugstore to buy something. He says, is that your life to swear on? Like you're okay because oh, I just swore on my own life and that's my problem. No, it's not your problem because God created you and you have no power over your life anyway. So why are you swearing by your own head? He says, that's ridiculous. And this is his point. Jesus is shot down for examples and he says, this is my point. God is in all of life, and every statement we make is before God, period. Here's the new concept. Just tell the truth all the time, and you won't have to say, I swear, or I promise, or this time, not gonna lie. So he says, listen, verse 37, when you say yes, how about just keeping it? Yes, I forgive you. And then what has to happen after you say, yeah, I forgive you? How about when you say, I'll pay you back? How about when you say, yes, I'll keep that confidential? You know what that really means to Christians? I'll keep that confidential means I'll only tell one person and I'll swear them to confidentiality. <laughs> I'm just going to tell one and you're the only one I told and you have to be super, super close. I swear to be calm. You're breaking it. Your yes isn't your yes. Your yes is, well, if I feel like it. Your yes is if uh, something else doesn't happen. Your yes is if, well, if my, uh, if my bottom's on the line or if I have to gain something. My yes can be a no. My no can be a yes. But he says, when you say no, no, I won't let you down. No, I won't be late. No, I won't lie to you. No, I won't be unfaithful. He says, just 
then he leaves us with a warning. He goes, anything beyond just simple truth, you're flirting with the devil because he's the father of lies. He's the one who wants to trip you up and to get you to fudge the truth because he's been lying since the beginning. And Jesus said, when he lies, that's his native tongue. That's all he knows how to do is he's a liar. And one writer said this, it just, well, boom. He said, we are never more like the devil than when we lie because he is the father of lies. And we are never more like our father, God, because he is the truth. Let us practice truthfulness, telling the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What? So help us, God. Amen? There's one left here. Let's finish up with the urge to get even that's in our, all of our hearts. So he says, think twice about your marriage vows, people. Think twice about your truthfulness and your words. Now I want you to think twice about how you react when you get poked around a little bit and you get an elbow here or do you take it on the chin or do you uh, smack them back? All right, let's read here. We'll finish up with verse 38. You heard it said... Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, your shirt, let him have your coat or your jacket as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away uh, the one who wants to borrow from you. So here's some words. So first of all, I'll tell you this, and it should be common sense that these are not legalistic, absolute, uh, to be physically manifested. He's talking about cultivating an attitude, a heart of mercy, a heart of humility, because it doesn't work actually physically to put into effect what he's speaking about, but we'll get to that. We'll take them one at a time. You've heard it said that, and he quotes the Old Testament, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, and never was a scripture more misunderstood than and today. Here's what it was meant. It was a law guiding civil government in court cases uh, that the punishment be equal to the crime. So here's what would happen. You know, passions and emotions would flare and there would be axes to grind with the litigants and then there's personal history involved. And so they needed to limit the overly severe punishment. So they say, no, 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 no. Uh, 10 years for stealing a shovel. No, 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 no. Shovel, stealing a shovel should, should reap a stealing a shovel um, punishment so that the punishment was commensurate with the degree of the severity of the crime. So that is the purpose of it, was to protect people from vigilantism, for taking the law in their own hands and say, oh, I'll show you, take my shovel, I'll put the shovel over your head, right? Oh, no, 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 it's a stolen shovel. And then the, it would protect the person who was 
overly <laughs> um, punished. And he could use that law to say, look what he did to me. So it was a way to protect people, but the rabbis were using it to promote a this-for-that mentality among people. So, you know, how much did that shovel cost? $86.72. Okay, go after him for $82.63, whatever it was, all right? This, this, this for that, this for that. He says, listen, you're my people now. You're called out of the world. This is the world's mentality. How are you different from anybody else? I want you guys to pop and to shine and to reflect me for people to... I want you to... And this is the, the spirit of this paragraph is this. I want you to blow their minds so we can open their hearts. That's what I want from you guys. You leave all the hard stuff to me, but you keep your heart from wanting to be like them. And so um, Jesus' new thought is, blessed are the merciful, you know, citizens of heaven, uh, representatives of Christ. So, so here's the spirit of what he's saying about the shovel. Let's keep the shovel. You know what? If someone takes your shovel, why not just let them have it, invite them over for dinner, and, 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 and as he's leaving, give him a little gift for the garden to go along with the shovel that he now has. And then give him a Bible and start praying for him. You're going to see that dude in heaven. You're going to impact him. This is the spirit of it. When at all possible, he's saying. Now... And that's the way, he says, uh, you know, Paul says to Christians, you'd be better off being wrong than suing a brother. And especially when they all know you're both Christians. He says, why not rather just be wrong and let God take care of him and God take care of you? Now, there's nothing wrong with getting justice and being um, protected and protecting your assets and all of this stuff as we're going to see. But, you know, this is what he's saying. He's saying there's a bigger picture, folks. He's saying there's a heaven, there's a hell. There's a heaven to gain, a hell to avoid. And the person who stole your shovel is probably headed to the ladder. It's so much bigger than this and that. And I'm going to get you because you got me. And he's saying, can my people be a little different? You know. So he says, do not resist an evil person. Bad translation. But I understand because that's what the words kind of say in the original. But it should be understood this way. First of all, we never resist. We never not resist evil. The whole New Testament is about denouncing, renouncing, exposing evil, standing up to it, standing up for the truth, to stand our moral ground, to correct, to rebuke, to 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 keep someone out of harm's way. So, what is he talking about? The word resist there has a nuance of le. It's a legal word in this context. It means listen when you're aggressed. Don't lock horns with them. When they're breathing fire, don't become a fire breather. You're a peacemaker. You're the meek. You're the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are, are, are those who want peace and make peace. That's who you are. Don't go be about, I've got to ruin them because they ruin me. Don't get infected with that. As I said, protection, yeah. Yes, getting justice, 
Yeah, all right? But watch your heart. So then to the famous um, turn the other cheek thing. Being struck on the right cheek to Jesus' listeners means the right-handed aggressor would give a backhanded slap. A backhanded slap to the Jews was an idiom for an insult. And clearly, he means insult. When somebody insults you, you're not to play the game and say, well, I'm going to insult you back. I heard what you said about me, and you know what? You know what? You know, you said I was dumb. Well, you're dumber than me. You know what? You're so dumb that, you know, whatever. <laughs> he says, are you really going to stoop to their level? You're going to be just like them? I thought you belonged to me. What are you playing the game when the world is going back and forth like a ping pong ball? You said this to me and about me, and I don't stand for that, and you, ah, that's not the spirit of God. And if Jesus wanted us to turn the other cheek, well, then listen to this. Jesus got smacked in the face, and he did not turn the other cheek and said, hey, hit me there. He didn't do that. In fact, he asked him a question. He said, excuse me, you just struck me. I want to know why you struck me. Did I say something wrong? I answered the question. Did I say something wrong? If I said something wrong, I'd like you to tell me what it was. But if I didn't say anything wrong, he's saying this to the guy who struck him, then why did you strike me? Hmm. So the word means insult. And here's where Jesus shows us what he means. He did not, Peter telling us, who watched it, Peter saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He let his case, he left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. They called him, and I'm quoting the Bible, they called him a glutton. You're a pig. You eat all the time. Every time we see you, you're eating, eating, eating. You're a drunk. You're an illegitimate child. Oh, yes, we heard about your mom conceived of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Called him, John chapter 8, illegitimate. And there's another cuss word for that, and that's the word they used. A blasphemer, a madman. They said you're out of uh, your mind. A deceiver. And he never said, oh, yeah, never did. He entrusted himself. So this is what he says to you. Listen, get some thick skin. It'll give you more peace in your heart. Trust God. Close your mouth. Pray for the person. And leave the rest to the Lord. And thereby, you know you belong to him. God will work it out. He really will. Now, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your shirt, then why don't you throw in your jacket too? So, so this is a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of just because it doesn't work that way in the court system. You know, so he's saying, this is what I want you to be, the kind of person who would do something like that, who would say, you know, you know, you, <laughs> you know, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, even in a country, and he's talking about Great Britain, where justice can be had, we are not to resort to law for every personal wrong. We believe 
We would rather be uh, put out than to be forever crying out, I'll see you in court. See, that's not the kind of people we should be. You know, always, you know, worried about the ding in the car, the parking. You're parking too close to me, and you're the, the, the tree's hanging over and causing all the problems, and you're a bad person, and I don't like you. All of this stuff. We're so, he's saying, listen, when they aggress you, he's going to get so crazy, and we don't have time to go there next week. He's going to say, I want you to love your enemy and do good to those who use you and abuse you, do good to them. You know, common sense things. Guard your heart, blow their minds, respond in the opposite spirit. Why? Because the spirit of the living God has taken residence in your heart and raised you up to new life so that you share the divine nature. Second Peter chapter one, you share the divine nature. That's crazy. He says, God gives you his nature so that you're able to do the superhuman and that everything where he's talking about. Come on. Someone sues you for your car and you say, hey, listen, you can have the car, but inside the trunk of the car, you're going to find a brand new bicycle. I want you to have it. Who does that? Jesus. Well, when he's trying to win somebody, Oh, when, when, when his patience is gone and they've had their time and they've chosen uh, not to come to him, oh, he has a different way of dealing with people. Pretty severe. But in the spirit of the age of amnesty, the spirit of the church and grace and grace and whosoever will come in that climate, he's like, let's blow their minds and open their hearts. It's the scratch on the side of your metal door, really all that important. So he says, win them, man, win them. And finally, he says, give to those who ask you. Don't turn them away if somebody wants to borrow. Now, he certainly can't mean this is an absolute because after every church service, uh, for people who uh, we think might be well-to-do, uh, everybody would form a line and, and, and start asking and quoting the scripture. <laughs> you know, hey, I need a loan. Hey, I need some money, right? And if this were forced to its absolute, we'd all be broke or bankrupt, right? So here's what he's saying. I want you to... In this hard world where there's need all over, don't get jaded. Don't get hard. Be a giving, generous person. Take some chances out there. You can't give to any, everyone who asks you, of course. And you don't give to a drug addict on the street who's begging so he can shoot up or he can go buy another beer. Not going to lie, he says, I want another beer. Well, I'm not going to fund that with the, with the resources God provides for me. So these words don't mean that. They mean use common sense. You know what I tell somebody who asks me? I said, I'm not giving you a dime, but I'll buy you a meal if you're hungry. And nine times out of 10, they say yes. And I'm happy to buy them. This is what he means. Give. Have a giving heart. So don't go buy and, and think of God. The guy makes more than I do. You know, loser. You know, no, <laughs> no. Hey, are you hungry? You're giving. 
You're praying for them every time you go by. I used to try to train my kids when they were little, dropping off at school or whatever, and we used to do this thing. We'd pass the same guy all the time, right? So I'd can the kids bananas, and then they'd lower the window, and as I was passing by the guy, uh, they'd throw the bananas out at him. <laughs> and they loved that game, and I was seeking on making it fun. They're learning, hey, it's fun to give. <laughs> you know, well, you know, throwing the bananas out. Uh, because we're giving, we don't just pass people, hardening your hearts. Well, if you manage your money better, yeah, they don't. We don't. Soft-heartedness, open hands, open arms, open home, open wallet with common sense, not enabling but encouraging. Let me close with a story. It's one of my favorites. And I've used it. Some of you, half of you know it, maybe three quarters of you. But uh, it, it catches the spirit of what Jesus is after today. So I worked at this college, and I worked with a woman uh, who's part of the plus community out there. And she found out I was a pastor. And she said, to everybody how much she hates pastors, hates Christians, hates born-again Christians, wishes they would all die. And so, yeah, so she would make these uh, feelings public, and then she found it in her heart to just really make my life there at the college very difficult, and she did. She succeeded. I mean, every little thing, uh, if I were, I was a minute late, she'd go to the dean. If I wasn't wearing a tie under my sweater, she would check to see if there's a tie under there, you know, so that she could go tell on me. And, you know, I was tempted kind of not to like her. <laughs> and, uh, so one day I'm out with Barb, and I saw, this is the 90s when Beanie Babies were popular, and I saw this black Beanie Baby uh, of a tarantula. And I said, I'm buying this. And Barb said, for who? And I said, Nancy at work. I'm going to tell her, hey, I saw this, and I thought about you. <laughs> and Barb says, uh, no, you're not going to do that. And so I said, thank you, Holy Spirit, you know. And, and I looked down, and next to it is this little worm, and it's, a, it's a rainbow colored. And I just thought, this is the best of both worlds. It's a worm, but it's rainbow colored. So I'm going to give her a worm, uh, and it's rainbow colored. So Monday morning at the college, of course she happens to sit next to me. Oh, God's got it all worked out. So I pull out the baby, the baby worm. And I put it down, and I slide it in front of her. And she's like, oh, this is the baby. I've got the mom. Oh, I've been looking all over. It's rare. It's a rare, the baby one. I wanted the... And she looks at me, and she's like, oh, it's you. <laughs> her whole face fell like, oh, man, I was so excited. And then I look at her, and she's gazing right at me. And I look at her, and I go, thank you, Ross. And she goes, thank you, Ross. Changed. The next day, she called me her buddy. I spent 10 minutes talking to myself. Buddy? Buddy? What? <laughs> the next few days, she puts her arm around me. 
That's like she comes in for a hug. She goes, what's up, buddy? You know? And now, oh, now we can start talking. So I gave her a book after a month of this about how to find Christ, no matter what your uh, orientation may be, with including testimonies, right? She read the book, gave it back to me, and there are pencil marks underlining uh, prominent passages that show me that she's listening and reading and highlighting, right? Now, all of that is made possible because God said, blow her mind and be nice to her even though she's aggressive to you. I want you to be kind to her. Blow her mind so we can open her heart. That's the way it goes. It's powerful to live kingdom principles in a world that doesn't have any idea who they're messing with. God Almighty, his wonderful love. And so let's do that, right? So the three things to remember, you know, with God's help, we need to take our marriages seriously. (laughs) We need to, with Jesus' help, let our words be truthfully to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in love. And thirdly, with the Holy Spirit leading the way to cultivate a meek and humble heart in the face of hostile environment and aggression. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your living word that just like kind of smacks us around all over the place. God grabs us by the scruff of the neck and leads us to cool, refreshing waters. Leads us to sweet spirit, green pastures, and like, aha, it seemed like it's impossible, but it is possible. As we yield to you. So do your work, God. These are ideas that are not naturally. uh, We have no natural inclination, God, for any of this. It all comes from your spirit. Help us to love the things you love, to be more like you in our dealings in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.